From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, now that lawmakers have wrapped up their work for the year, we'll hear from our public affairs team about new laws enacted and the impact they'll have on Coloradans. Then, a researcher's quest to find what triggers obesity. Obesity is driven by a switch. That switch is fructose. How the fructose works is it drops the energy in the cell, creating a false sense of starvation. How that switch works and how to turn it off. Later, it's go time for gardeners. Is it better to periodically water every three or four days or light water daily for tomatoes? Should I water when it looks like they are getting heat stress? We'll answer listener questions with a gardening expert. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Fentanyl, election security, tax breaks and refunds, abortion, and behavioral health. They're all issues state lawmakers tackled during their annual session. It wrapped up Wednesday. Our public affairs reporters, Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny, are here for the post-game show. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Hello. Let's start by talking about Last things first, which bills made it to the 11th hour, Andy? Uh, There's a bill on fentanyl, like you just mentioned. That's the lethal synthetic drug. And that was the topic that seemed to get the most attention. It literally did go to, I think, the 11th hour of the day. Um, And they, they passed a bill, ultimately, that has truly consumed this session. And the bill included tougher criminal sanctions for possession and sale of the drug, along with more money for treatment. And by the way, fentanyl has gotten so much attention because it's come to really dominate the supply of illicit drugs and it's resulting in hundreds of overdoses because it's lethal in such small amounts. Uh, The bill also includes a requirement that jails provide more treatment for people who are arrested and in withdrawals for opiates. It's an issue that lawmakers of both parties have set as a priority for them. What kept it hung up for so long? It was the question of criminal charges related to drugs. Um, Going into this, there was fairly wide consensus among Democrats and Republicans that they were going to have stiffer penalties, uh, more punishment for alleged dealers of fentanyl, people distributing it. But Republicans and moderate Democrats and lots of people in law enforcement also wanted to add these felonies that target people for just possessing the drug, just having it, simple possession. And they said that would be a way to just, you know, give law enforcement more tools, quote unquote, to target low level dealers and kind of push casual users into treatment. But that idea is really controversial among Democrats because lots of them don't think jail and prison is an effective response at all to addiction. Um, And then the final bill, of course, like did end up including new felonies for possession. But what they spent almost all day yesterday talking about was the details of that new possession felony and specifically 
uh, whether it should apply to people who didn't even know that they were maybe buying fentanyl because it's being laced into other drugs. Uh, and at that 11th hour, they ended up with a, a really complicated compromise that I doubt will make anyone happy and is is not going to apply to lots of cases. But it was enough to get that fentanyl bill across the, the finish line and get it passed. Hmm. Benta, what were you watching in the final days? Uh, one thing I was looking at is an election security bill, and this was a big priority for Democrats. It was inspired by Mesa County Clerk and Recorder Republican Tina Peters. She is alleged to have compromised Mesa County's voting machines while searching for proof of fraud in the 2020 election. Peters is now facing state charges related to election tampering, identity theft, and misconduct. And you've covered Peters quite a lot. Mm -hmm. What would this do? Well, it seeks to prevent situations like this in the future. So the, the bill tries to make it clear that the things Peters is alleged to have done are illegal. So it bars counties from copying voting machine hard drives without state permission. It also mandates full-time video monitoring of election equipment and restricts who can access that equipment and be in the room even. It increases penalties for security breaches. It also adds more training for county clerks to hopefully keep them from believing conspiracy theories about the equipment and elections. Republicans almost universally oppose this bill. They did, however, win some concessions. Democrats removed a provision that banned county uh, election officials from spreading misinformation and also a provision that required clerks and election staff to get training on how to combat misinformation and disinformation. What did Republicans object to? This whole topic of election integrity, I'm sure it's not news to anyone, is extremely polarizing and political. The state GOP rallied against this bill, and they said it was a power grab because it does give more authority to the secretary of state, who happens to be a Democrat right now. One Republican lawmaker I talked to said, even if a lot of the provisions aren't problematic, the politics behind this made it impossible for most Republicans to vote for. And Andy, I want to ask you about a bill I know you are following. It would give more organizing rights to local public sector workers. Where did that end up? Well, it, it passed, but it was very different from where it started. Originally, it was written so that it would allow hundreds of thousands of local public government employees to um, have many more rights to, if they want to, to unionize and maybe even to go on strike if they don't get what they want through collective bargaining. But uh, it was a big change. It had a lot of opponents, including Governor Jared Polis. And so over the months, even before it was introduced, they cut it back again and again and again, slowly carving out different people from getting those new organizing rights. And when it was finally passed yesterday, the final bill actually only applied to county workers, which is just a small fraction of the public employees in the state. And it only applied to some counties. It excluded the smaller counties, um, you know, the, the the rural ones where county leaders said they just didn't have the, the money to deal with uh, unions and collective bargaining. And it also included some of the larger counties with more complex systems of government. And they also... Car, they, they also cut off some of the rights that they had been hoping to grant to those workers. So they won't be allowed to go on strike, for example, and, and some other details. Um, so much reduced in the end. But, you know, those supporters are still saying it's a victory. It's a first step. And that's how legislation works sometimes is you, you make one tiny step and it's something to build on in the future. And Andy, you mentioned Governor Polis. What was his role in the session? 
Oh boy, he is. He's been pretty hands-on uh, when it comes to the legislature. Um, he doesn't make tons of big public statements, but he does let Democrats know what he agrees with and what he doesn't, and that tends to be very effective. Very few Democrats go against him and send him bills that you know that he'll then veto. So he uses the threat of a veto to really shape legislation. Um, besides shaping the public sector bill, another big example was that. Um, he helped to get this ban on flavored tobacco, you know, like menthol cigarettes. They wanted to get rid of menthol cigarettes and uh, flavored nicotine vaporizers. Um, it may have been able to pass, but Polis kept letting them know he opposed it. And Senate Democrats ended up uh, doing some political moves and, and ensuring that it died in a committee rather than making it out of the legislature. A few weeks ago, the governor introduced a bill to get people their Tabor tax mm -hmm. refunds earlier. Benta, how did that end up? That passed, and Democrats say now that, that these refunds could even be higher uh, if the state revenue stays strong. Of course, if the economy weakens, they could also be smaller, but you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. What are the politics of this? I have to imagine tax refunds are pretty popular. This had bipartisan support in the legislature, but, you know, th there are some politics, too, and Republicans say they feel like this is a transparent election move to send people a check right before November, because that's when these tax refunds would come. They're, the timelines moved up. And they also note in the past that many Democrats have called Tabor refunds wasteful and wanted the state to keep that revenue. So Republicans find this whole thing a little hypocritical. And here's Republican House Minority Leader Hugh McKean. I joked around that it's something we all agree on, that Tabor is great. And it is, because it, it, it's doing its job, which is to constrain government so that we don't take too much from families. But at the same time, the minute we passed this, the governor sent out a fundraising email saying, look what I did on Tabor. Benta, how did this session go when it comes to bipartisanship? You talked about some things, Tabor refunds, fentanyl bill that were bipartisan and others like election security that weren't. In general, how well did lawmakers do working together? There were some tougher moments, like every session, but the chamber never really went off the rails. And, and despite this is an election year. We're heading into the midterm elections with new political lines. And I was surprised how many big bipartisan items passed. Um, things like behavioral health policies and, yes, the fentanyl bill and some of the tax relief measures. So even despite deep disagreements and a very polarized uh, political mood nationally, the state legislature is a lot different from Congress. State lawmakers do work across the aisle and so many different bills pass and become law. Andy, anything to say here? Yeah, you know what? It ended on Wednesday with the usual cheering and and a little bit of liquor on the House floor, et cetera. But, um, you know, there were pretty tense moments, especially earlier in the week between the parties when, uh, especially in that House chamber, Republicans really slowed down the work of the body to a crawl, having bills read at length, eating up time in a way that looked like it could really derail out all the bills, including some you know, very bipartisan ones that needed to get passed in the next couple of days. Um, but, you know, that ultimately was resolved. Um, you know, Democrats came to an agreement with the different uh, factions of Republicans in the House. And starting on Tuesday, things started to fly through a lot quicker. Benta, so the session is over now. What is next? Well, there's a, a little something about primaries coming up mm. just six weeks away. 
And I know we'll be talking with you both again soon about the primaries. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny are CPR's state capital reporters. When we come back, does nature want us to be fat? A Colorado researcher explains why the answer may very well be yes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. With a job opening now to join the Denverite team, reporting for the curious and concerned about everything making the Mile High City tick. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. Now a book the author calls a detective-like story, only it's a scientific quest to understand why people gain weight and become obese. And there's more to it than you might think. Dr. Richard Johnson is a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. His new book is called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So nature wants us to be fat. Are you saying obesity isn't our fault? Yeah, actually, I am saying that. You know, everybody has thought that for years that obesity was simply because we're choosing to eat more food than we should. We're exercising less than we should. And the consequences that we're putting on extra weight, and it's really a behavioral problem. It's something that we can addressed by just, you know, being strong and saying, okay, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to exercise more. But, you know, as it turns out, it isn't quite that simple. And and what we've learned is that, that there's actually a biological switch that gets turned on to try to make us gain weight. And uh, we've unfortunately activated it by eating certain foods. And these foods trigger us to actually become hungry and to eat more. And it kind of disrupts the normal way we would regulate our weight. Now, of course, what we eat and how much we eat and exercise is part of this equation. But tell us a little bit more about this biological switch. You started looking at animals in nature. Yes, we did do studies uh, of animals in the wild. And, uh, you know, most animals will regulate their weight very, very carefully. If they eat too much one day, They'll eat less the next or there'll be periods of time where they're, you know, where they exercise more and times when they exercise less and they maintain a pretty normal weight. But there's some animals that when it comes to like uh, winter and so forth, they realize that there's not going to be enough food. And so what they do is they start to turn on this sort of like a biologic switch where they suddenly start eating a lot more. They stay hungry. They forage for food. And they keep gaining weight in a very dramatic way. So like the bear, for example, in the fall can suddenly be gaining as much as 8 to 10 pounds a day. And it stores this fat, which it then survives through the winter by hibernating and living off that fat. So it turns out that these animals don't just accumulate fat. They actually activate an entire process where they get hungry. They forage for food. They become insulin resistant. They start storing fat in their liver and in their blood. And for a long time, it's been known that people who are overweight often are pre-diabetic, have insulin resistance. They often have slightly high blood pressure. 
they have fat in their liver and fat in their blood, high triglycerides. They even develop hunger and what we call leptin resistance. Normally there's this hormone called leptin that tells us when to quit eating. And most people who are overweight are resistant to the effects of leptin. We become resistant to it so we keep eating and we stay hungry. And so it's sort of interesting that we've actually activated the same switch that animals use to prepare for hibernation or long distance migration or nesting and things like that. Talk about some of the things that are activating this switch in people. And one of the main culprits you point to in your book is sugar. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was a bit of a detective story to try to figure out, you know, what exactly is triggering it. And it's been known for a long time that sugar intake is associated with metabolic syndrome and obesity. Sugar is uh, actually has two carbohydrates. There's a glucose and a fructose, that molecule that are bound together. And it turns out that the fructose component is the critical component that activates the switch. And so what we found is like animals in nature, they get their fructose by eating huge amounts of fruit. So like the bear will eat a large amount of berries. I mean, as much as 5,000 berries in a 24-hour period. And so they will activate the switch by eating huge amounts of fruit. We, When we eat a natural fruit, we're not really activating the switch. In fact, the natural fruit has a lot of good stuff in it, like vitamin C and so forth. But if we drink fruit juice, we can activate the switch because we put so much fruit together that we do get a slug of fructose. But the most common way to get a large amount of fructose is by eating sugar or high fructose corn syrup. And these days, Andrea, the the average person is eating about 15% of their diet is sugar. And some people are eating 17, 20 or 25% of their total calories is sugar. So that's a lot of fructose and that's a lot of sugar and that's enough to activate this switch. And are you saying that once we sort of turn on this switch, going back is harder? Yeah, well, once you've activated the switch, you know, normally this will only work for a limited period of time and then you'll recover, of course. So when you eat the fructose, you're activating the switch, but then unless you keep eating it, the switch will eventually be turned off. But what's happening is we're eating sugar all the time. And so this is playing a role in driving the switch and keeping it on. But it turned out that there was another big discovery that came from our work. And that is that the body can make fructose. It isn't just the sugar we eat and the high fructose corn syrup we eat, but our body can actually make fructose and it likes to make it from glucose. And so when we're eating things like starchy foods, uh, especially what we call high glycemic carbs, like uh, potatoes and rice and bread, what happens is when we eat that, the glucose uh, is released from the starch. And if the glucose levels get up in the blood, they will activate this process where the glucose gets first gets converted to fructose, and then it activates this basic mechanism. So it isn't just from the uh, sugar we're eating, but we can actually make fructose from high glycemic carbs like bread, rice, cereal, potatoes. Haven't we always known, though, that sugar is bad for us, that these starchy foods, breads, make us gain weight? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, you know, it's been known for quite some time that carbs play a big role in driving obesity. And this led to the low carb diet. And it turns out that going on a low carb diet actually does remove the sugar from the diet. And it also removes a lot of these high glycemic carbs, you know, on a low carb diet. So the low carb diet fits pretty well with this whole story. But when we identified that this is the mechanism, we actually identified another pathway that was pretty important that we didn't really know about. And that is that when the salt concentrations in the body go up, you activate this process that converts glucose to fructose. And it turns out that when we eat salt, we actually raise the salt concentrations in our blood and it activates this process to convert carbs to fructose. And so that's why the French fry is so bad because it's starchy, you know, it's got the potato, but it's often very salty and the salt really triggers that switch. And so once we realized that salt could also activate the switch, we started reviewing the literature and we found that there's a pretty strong relationship between salt intake and obesity and that people who are overweight tend to eat salty diets and they tend to have evidence of thirst and being dehydrated. In one study, people who are obese were about 12 times more likely to be dehydrated than control subjects or lean subjects. And so, you know, there's definitely a relationship between obesity and dehydration. And that led us to studies to try to figure out how this works. And we were able to link a special hormone, a specific hormone in the blood called vasopressin with its having a role in how sugar causes obesity and how salt can cause obesity. We know salt isn't good for you, but we didn't necessarily know how much of a role it plays in obesity and making someone gain weight. That's right. So it's been known for a long time that salt is associated with high blood pressure, uh, also with heart disease. But really, uh, there wasn't a lot of evidence that salt was linked with obesity. But actually, there's now probably 10 or 15 papers that have found that salt intake actually predicts the development of obesity. And it also predicts the development of fatty liver and diabetes and all these other conditions. And when you give salt to an animal, we did this. For the first few months, you know, the animals look normal and they're eating more, but they're not really gaining weight. But after about two or three months, they suddenly become very, very fat and they become diabetic. And uh, it turns out that they're activating this switch and you can show that they're producing fructose in their body. And if you give them water, you can actually block the development of the switch. And, you know, you've seen all those people who run around and drink six to eight glasses or 10 glasses of water a day and, you know, claim that it helps them stay lean and healthy. And, you know, for a lot of us, we thought it was a myth. But what we've learned is that actually it's true. Drinking water can help suppress this dehydration that tends to activate the switch. And so drinking water is actually a wonderful thing to do to stay healthy and it can combat obesity. And uh, reducing salt is another thing that can help. Dr. Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. 
Dr. Richard Johnson is a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He specializes in kidney disease and hypertension. His book is called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. When we come back, we head out to the garden to answer your seasonal questions, like finding sustainable plants that don't need a lot of water and keeping those tomato plants strong. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Kraus is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It's go time for gardeners. Mother's Day signaled the start of the spring season for much of Colorado, and our listeners have saved up a winter's worth of questions for expert Fatima Imad. She's founder of Frontline Farming. It's a community group that focuses on farming and education. And Fatima Imad, welcome. Good morning, Andrea. Thanks for having me on this beautiful Colorado day. Mother's Day is a time when a lot of people start planting in Colorado. It came early this year. Is it safe to plant right now? Uh, It's always such a tough question for us out here in Colorado. And generally, we like to err on the side of caution and plant a little later in May, um, just because we've seen that we get some crazy sort of cold temperature drops. We've had snow at the end of May. And at the same time, we see that our temperatures are getting really hot right now. So it feels like it's going to be a pretty hot summer. And the sort of detriment to not planting early is that if it gets really hot on us at the end of May and we start hitting those 90s, even close to 100 degrees like last year, and you haven't planted early, then it's hard for our plants to establish themselves in that hot heat. So my recommendation is right now we're getting planted starting this week, particularly with our tomatoes, which can take it a little colder, and then shifting into other more hot-loving plants next week. The soil's warm enough to start planting your cucumbers and other seeds, certainly. And I think if we get hit hard with some cold weather, um, I'd err on the side of caution planting early this year and maybe replanting if you have to. As you said, it's been very dry, windy, hot uh, across much of Colorado. We got a lot of questions about what grows without a lot of water. Let's first talk about flowers. What are some of your favorites? Sure. So I think when we start to think about really maintaining and managing water use, which is certainly important for us out here in Colorado, and particularly for our city residents, where we're connected to city water and not as much concerned about drought conditions that are really hitting our people in the western slope and that our water is really flowing down from there and we've hit some critical points where we need to consider that. So really thinking about shifting from our grasses and 
into plants that take less water. So there's, of course, all sorts of perennials that flower that you can use um, and are more drought tolerant and water resistant. I love, you know, one good thing about perennials is you want to consider and for flowering in your garden is how you plant things so things are coming up at different times. But certainly we see a lot of good Russian sage around Colorado. You can plant lavenders, salvias do pretty well. There's phloxes, um, primrose, California poppies, coreopsis does really well during this time, bellflowers, hyssop and yarrow, if you're familiar with those, which are more common. So you really have a lot of options. And while I could give you a list, um, just looking up for yourself, what are good seriscaping uh, low trout low water need and drought tolerant plants that flower, you can easily find a great list. Uh, I like to look at Alameda Wholesale Nursery here around our Denver region, and they have a cool book that they also offer and always on their website where they tell you what are the best plants for cirrusscaping that you can easily access here in um, our areas and as well as different things like shady and different types of seasons. So that's a great resource. A couple low water flowers that like the shade. Could you give us a couple? A couple low water flowers that like the shade. Um, well, you have coral bells, so heuchera. That's a good low laying one. When I think of a lot of annuals that take the shade, such as begonias, um, which are a good one for the shade, and patients do well. But as you go into annuals, those are going to require more maintenance. Again, a lot of your drought tolerant ones that I've mentioned, like ice plants, um, different types of anemone, there's summer blooming and then fall blooming ones, which are beautiful and pop up at times you don't have a lot of summer growth, do really well in the shade as well. Are there flowers that used to do really well in Colorado, maybe even 10 years ago, that you don't plant anymore because of climate change? There are plants, certainly, we have to start thinking about how we're planting things that are more drought tolerant. And again, it's just going back to these different types of xeriscape plants and really considering the fact that here in Colorado, we're really in a semi-arid desert um, region. So we should always be having that consciousness. I've seen a lot of shifts in sort of the annuals that I'll plant and the density of that, encouraging us to really plant more perennials in our yards because once they're established with heavier water in the beginning, they're able to reach down into the soil and pull up water that makes them more drought tolerant. Your annuals are so, um, you know, surface rooted and you have such a short time for them, they're not gonna establish deep into the ground. So my big recommendation is really to start thinking about shifting into perennials. For us, we've seen a shift in particularly some plants we plant with the pressure of Japanese beetles, which I'm sure some gardeners are familiar with. And I've had a lot of questions about their, you know, beautiful iridescent um, bug that we see and that emerges and is hard to control because they lay their grubs in the soil and then they emerge um, over the season. And there really is a natural predator for them and have been moving from the east-west for us. So we see that they like a lot of plants in the rosaceae family, and particularly roses. I've had good experience um, 
with planting wild roses, which do a good job of resisting them. But I've shifted away from planting a lot of roses because when there are particular plants that we know um, that insect pressure is attracted to, it can become a vector for bringing more of those insects into your garden. Folks who want to grow vegetables, backyard farmers are also struggling. Let's listen here. Hi, this is Mark McGee from Berthoud, Colorado. Last year, we had a hot, dry conditions all summer, and it made the tomato plants wilt in the midday sun. I reacted by watering to cool the plants. I think I was watering too often. The plants stayed healthy with lots of fruit, but we had lots of tomato rot. The question is, is it better to periodically water every three or four days or light water daily for tomatoes? Should I water when it looks like they are getting heat stress? I did buy a soil moisture meter for this season. Thanks. And as as I said, as he said, uh, tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable. Thanks for that question, Mark. Fatima, what do you suggest here? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, Mark. And your question reflects a depth of knowledge you already have. And it's certainly confusing. You know, our tomatoes and most of our heat-loving plants really don't like it above 85 degree temperature. So tomatoes in particular, as you get into eggplant and okra, they could take it hotter, even peppers to a degree. So that those temperatures aren't ideal. We were really struggling on the farm ourselves with those 100 degree days and just watching our plants get hit. So these are my recommendations and general guidances and thinking about that. Whenever you're planting a plant at the very beginning, the plant has shallow roots. And with the extreme heat, what you wanna make sure is you're getting more frequent watering for short amounts of time and keeping that surface layer wet. So even for our seeds and whatnot, we'll start overhead watering, although we primarily use drip tape. Um, so using a mechanism like drip tape where it's directly delivering water to your root system is very important. As we know, when we water plants, water is taken up by the roots of the plants primarily. So we always want to water directly to the roots. And the danger of watering on the leaves of plants is that most diseases for any plant come through the leaves themselves. And so we know when we think about squashes and cucumbers that we're always going to be dealing with powdery mildew no matter what. It's in the air. It's going to land. But certainly if we're watering the leaves and it goes into the night and damp temperatures, it's really going to create greater vectors for that. So to your question about watering tomatoes, um, you mentioned that what happened was you saw the outcome of that in the blossom end rot, which really is caused by a calcium deficiency because mm. the calcium isn't being moved well into the plant for ample moisture supplies. And when drought occurs, the fruit um, continues to develop, but is affected by this calcium deficiency. And really the issue is inconsistent watering. So great question, you're on the right track. Tomatoes have really deep roots. So once your tomatoes are growing and established, you really do want to water them less frequently. And I would water my plants about every two days or three days, depending on how hot it is. And I think you're exactly right with saying you have that soil gauge because we're taking a soil knife and looking deeper. You don't want to just look at the top of your soil and say, 
oh my, the soil's um, dry because generally we'll have water deeper down. So deeper watering for tomatoes less frequently is exactly the way to go. Keep your watering schedule frequent. And then to your point about how hot it got, um, you know, certainly when we look at our gardens at the heat of day, everything's kind of wilting, but not hitting a permanent wilting point. So we have to balance that concern. I always like to go back and look as more of the sun is setting or early in the morning to feel better about things. But when it's hitting those 100 degree temperatures, we felt like even our plants were almost starting to burn. And so there were some days that I brought out the hose and gave them a light spray. And again, with caution to do it when it's a hot time of day. What about some vegetables that are easier to grow in the heat? Yeah, so as we've been entering these really extreme temperatures uh, in my lifetime growing up here, I've, I've just seen so much shift over the summers that as people, we also have to rethink what we're eating and what we can grow. Just insisting that certain plants and vegetables, because we're used to them, are just going to grow under any condition doesn't work. And so many of us know that cool season crops like lettuces and spinach aren't going to grow in a hot time. And now we're starting to sort of struggle with some of these plants we consider to um, be more hot season plants. So for us, we've started to think a little bit more about what do they grow in the south? What are grown in other regions of the world? So we've started to experiment with peanuts and have grown them successfully. We've also grown sweet potatoes successfully. Um, you can start your own sweet potato slips. That's the vine that grows up from your sweet potato. You could cut it, put it in water. You could just put it in some soil. You can uh, really buy some. I like to buy mine at natural grocers where it's organic and it'll start sprouting for me. And I cut those and make my own slips. The key to growing things like peanuts and sweet potatoes, which historically haven't been grown here, is that they're very long season crops. So you want to get them in the ground. It needs to be warm enough. If you think it's going to get a little cool, covering them. And in our experience, we've been experimenting and thinking out of the box. The other things that you might want to start thinking about is when you're growing certain plants like squashes and whatnot, that these are also plants from which you can eat vines. So my experience in uh, some communities that I've gone to, particularly Hmong communities when I was visiting in Dallas and it was so hot and people could only grow okra in the dead of the summer, they had a flourishing garden of vines weaving and really using different parts of the plant that you might not consider, but many parts of your plant are edible. And so we wanna widen our mind to being resilient and adjusting our palates as well to what's possible within our ecosystems. This question uh, tells you what kind of winter we had. One listener asked if there are any fire-tolerant plants. Any ideas? Yeah, I like this question because it's actually a little bit more profound than thinking, well, what does that mean? Is a plant just fire-tolerant, you know? Um, and the reality is that you know, this term uh, fire-resistant plants uh, does exist, but under any right condition, a plant is going to light on fire and everything's going to light on fire. But when we think of fire resistant plants, we're thinking of plants that aren't going to contribute or stoke a fire. And so I think as we already see these fires in New Mexico and the Rocky Mountains um, happening right now so early, and we have fear, many of us 
in sort of the Front Range region and other parts of Colorado already experienced the realities of what it might mean to evacuate our farms and gardens and things like that. And so when we're thinking about this, we're trying to think more of what are the skills and things we can do to ensure that the spaces around our homes have greater protection. So <clears throat> what we want to think about is, first of all, we don't want particular plants that have more maintenance and drop pines and needles. We really want to make sure that we're cleaning this stuff up around our plants. And also we want to make sure that we're placing plants. Placement of plants is a major thing. We want to make sure that we're not placing plants that um, and tree limbs close to our houses where they can ignite our homes very easily. And there is, you know, to some degree, a difference when we're thinking about this between what is a well-maintained garden and what is a fire-resistant garden. And so under any conditions, like I said, any plants can burn, but some are more susceptible. So things that have um, really woody and quickly peeling barks, things that are dropping needles, things that have high oil concentrates in them and turpins will ignite really readily. And um, I think that in this question, we're starting to think about what it means for us to start being resilient. And so this is more of a multi-step planning as you're landscaping around your home. And the greatest recommendations, again, is to keep limbs and plants not near to your homes where it can contribute to that igniting quickly and really trying to make sure that you're cleaning up dry matter around your plants during this hot time of season. We're talking with gardening expert Fatima Ahmad. She's co-founder of Frontline Farming. That's a Denver-based advocacy group that focuses on growing food and education. She also teaches at CU Boulder and owns a landscape company. We're answering listener questions as the spring planting season begins. Anna in Arvada wants to plant some native shrubs, but her mother-in-law says they'll take three years before they look nice. Without getting into some family counseling here, what are your thoughts? <laughs> That's a great question. I guess, you know, it's like we say when planting a tree, you might not be planting it for yourself, but you're planting it for the future generation. Shrubs are not that slow growing. And what I would say is if that you were looking for it to grow quickly and add that color, it really depends on the size of the shrub that you're buying. Certainly with larger sizes, it's a lot more expensive. And so many people will tend to start them smaller. Generally, when you're going to a supplier, they'll have it in one gallon, three gallon, five gallon, seven gallon buckets, seven gallon bucket of a shrub is generally a pretty full grown, ready to uh, bloom flowered leaf for you right that year. So it really depends on the money you have and the time you have for it to grow. Uh, again, being patient with your lawn and if it takes three years and that's what you want, that's the reality within which you're working. But you can also always plant some annuals around it and get some color while it's sort of growing into that space. Let's talk about bluegrass lawns. They hog water. It's the kind of grass a lot of us have. For people who want to do the right thing, what's the best way to tear out bluegrass and replace it with low water grass seed? Sure. It's a good question. And I think something that's on a lot of people's minds as 
we're getting water-wise. So there are a couple different methods that you can use, and each method has its timeline, benefits, and negatives. One method is referred to as solarization, and that's really just using something like a black plastic sheet to create this really sun-powered heat that will begin to kill your grass where you don't want it. It can be efficient in really getting those grasses out, which can be hard to get from the roots. It can be inexpensive, it's minimal labor, it doesn't have a lot of environmental impacts, um, and some of that dead grass can kind of compost in your soil and is great for those hot sunny areas. It's a soil method. It's maybe not the most attractive for your neighbors or people during that time, and it doesn't work well if you're talking about a shady area. Another method you can use is doing sheet covering. Some people call it lasagna gardening. And this is a method where you're sort of killing that grass by just simply saving up some cardboard or newspaper, covering it, and then you layer on top of it some organic matter um, or some compost, and then you put some mulch on it. That's a really nice method because it's creating that planting ground for you. And it's Benefits are it's efficient and expensive, again, minimal labor, minimal environmental impact. Um, it's a slow method. Sometimes it's not practical if you're dealing with a steep slope and it could be not ideal if you have a huge lawn. The other method and a little bit what people have referred to is just straight up physical removal, right? So that's removing your lawn with something like a sod cutter or manually using a square shovel or a, a particular type of hoe and really putting your back into it and trying to get that out. This could be a fast way to remove your lawn. Um, some of that sod, if you wanted, could make some compost, but usually retreating it. Uh, it leaves a lot of your soil still intact there. It could be a good workout for sure um, and can be easier on areas that are smaller. But the challenges with that is it's labor intensive. It also can have a higher chance of those grasses regrowing. It doesn't really work well for really long-rooted grasses like Bermuda grass because sod cutters don't really remove the roots in that way. Um, and then of course, if you're using a sod cutter, you'd require some machinery, which could be a challenge. So there are all these methods. Um, another one that's been more common and I hear more about now and does work is using vinegar. Vinegar is really a natural and safe alternative to herbicides, and you can just kill a lot of your lawn by applying a whole bunch of concentrated vinegar. It's eco-friendly, it's quick, it's generally good for small areas, it can be a little bit expensive, it's better in hot conditions, and it's not as common of a method, so you won't find a lot of information on it. And sometimes you might need to go back and do it again. And generally you wanna use a white or pickled vinegar to do that. So you have some options. What I don't recommend is using herbicides. Urban gardeners have challenges. We got this question on Twitter from a Denver listener. How do I go about starting a container garden for my west facing apartment balcony? How do you think? Yeah, that's... Um... A good question. We get a lot of these balcony questions, understandably. And really, a west-facing balcony is more similar to a southern-facing balcony. You're going to get a lot of strong sunlight in the afternoon for at least six hours, and then you're going to get less of that hot 
um, sun in the morning. So south-facing gardeners, as we know, they get full sunshine throughout the day. North-facing gardens get a lot less sunshine. Our east-facing gardens will get a lot of cool morning sun. And then that west side can offer a great balance, although sometimes in the afternoon you can get a lot of heat at that time. So being cautious and watching your plants during that time, if you feel like it's getting really hot in the afternoon, is a good thing and giving them water appropriately. But I want to wish you success and say I think you have a lot of opportunities to grow a lot of things in that west-facing garden. Well, this is a good reminder that not every backyard gardener has a backyard. You're active in making gardening accessible to more people. How are you doing that? Um, yeah, so, you know, as you had introduced me, I am the executive director and head farmer at Frontline Farming. And at Frontline Farming, we really work to create greater equity across our entire food system in Colorado, including getting more people of color into farming. So we've historically leased all our land and now are working to purchase our own plot of about 10 to 30 acres around the Denver region and have launched our own land campaign towards that in the spirit of reparations. We are a Black, Indigenous, people of color, and women-led farmer advocacy and food justice organization. And we work to teach farmers how to come back to the land that really has been taken away from so many of us. Over 70% of farm workers in the United States are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so creating spaces for us to have access and become farm owners is important. It's also important for us to distribute the food and produce that we grow that represents our cultures and communities and to grow sustainable amounts for our local economies. So frontline farming is really also about space making, letting our communities know that they have the right to good food and to be the honored for the work that many of our parents and ancestors have done to provide food for this nation. So really trying to Remind listeners and people that people are out there in the fields working hard and we want to build pathways for people to access good food and be able to access land as well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Fatima Ahmad is co-founder of Frontline Farming. It's a Denver-based advocacy group that focuses on food growing and education. She also teaches at CU Boulder and owns a landscaping company. Thanks for joining us today and to our team of Green Thumbs. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis with special thanks to Megan Verlee and Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Mm-hmm.